Welcome to On the Job with Porak, your go-to place for public safety and officer rights, giving you the news you need to know and discussing the issues that matter. Hi, and uh, welcome to On the Job with Porak. I'm Brian Marvel, president of Porak. And today we have uh, Porak Vice President Damon Kurtz will be joining me. And uh, we have special guest uh, David E. Mastagny from Mastagny Holstead. We also have Randy Perry of Aaron Reed and Associates. Today is a, another AB 931 podcast, and I don't know if that will probably be changing its number here shortly as the new legislative session begins. I'm sure everybody is aware of the huge battle we had here in Sacramento regarding the change of use of force standards. Um, obviously, the... Uh, the opponents or the supporters of AB 931 wanted to make it easier to criminalize peace officers and the performance of their duties, where we wanted to maintain the Graham v. Connor standard that has been set down by the Supreme Court of the United States. But we were willing to make some changes on the fleeing felony rule, which is better known as the Tennessee v. Garner. So the reason I have uh, David and Randy today we want to talk about prospective legislation for 2019. I want to make it very important to people that they should know the proponents continue to run another bill. Um, based on the information that we're seeing and hearing, uh, it's going to be much worse than what was proposed last year. So I don't want to go too much into what happened last year because we've done a couple podcasts on that. I definitely want to take a look at the prospective approach that we're taking. I think we heard loud and clear from the electeds in Sacramento that there needs to be some change. And uh, I think everybody at this table wants to reduce use of force incidents with law enforcement officers uh, in the communities that we're sworn to protect. And I think, I think we put a really good plan together. And uh, I know we've been calling it the three-legged stool and I'm trying to address these issues. Um, it's really a societal issues. There's a lot of societal issues that need to be addressed. Um, there's things that we can do uh, with our use of force policies and our training policies. So I think initially we'll start with some of the societal issues and I'm going to actually have Randy chime in a little bit because we've done some research and analysis on a lot of the homeless issues, mental health issues. Um, and let's just talk about some of those things that uh, consistently come up in conversations with elected folks and actually with our communities uh, and use of force and how officers deal with them. And the research that we're finding is people always call 911 as their first option when dealing with those types of issues. And Somebody who is in law enforcement, I worked on the streets in San Diego for about 10 years. We don't necessarily always get the training that we need or what people believe we should have in dealing with those types of issues. So if, could you expound a little bit on some of the research and analysis you've done for our poor act in taking this fight here in Sacramento? Sure, Brian. Thanks. Um, the bottom line is... Over the last oh, three to four decades, law enforcement has been given not only the responsibility of taking care of the homeless populations, they're called, the first ones called into homeless camps, uh, taking care of the mentally ill. You know, in the 60s, Ronald Reagan, when he was governor, closed down a lot of the 
um, mental health facilities, uh, hospitals here in California, those people didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't back it up with, you know, a lot's equal amount of money and programs for them to get help. They went to the street. They were, they relied on their families to take care of them. When they couldn't do that, they were on the street. Um, the youth issues, people starting with truancy to, to gang issues, um, drug abuse. You know, as you know, we have a major opioid uh, epidemic in the United States. Everybody's addressing, everybody agrees. Again, another issue uh, that, that, is, that are sending people to the streets. They're losing their businesses, they're losing their, their jobs and their homes. So all of that has fallen on law enforcement. So before we could actually try to address the issues that were raised by Dr. Weber and her legislation and her co-authors of her bill, I think rightfully so, the law enforcement community stepped back, did the research, and realized that these issues have been around for a long time. And not only has law enforcement got the responsibilities handed to them over the decades, but the liabilities as well. So, and, and we've accepted it, right? Law enforcement has accepted it. The cities and counties have accepted it. The problem is this. When it comes to legislation being introduced like 931, those liabilities no longer mean that if you didn't have enough training to deal with mentally ill or homeless camps or and you make a mistake before you might get disciplined for it or you do something or you might even god forbid you lose your job not be able to feed your family but with a bill like 931 that with that liability comes potential prison um and the civil liability that goes with it. So it's just a by raising the standard that we'll talk about here in a minute, now you've put law enforcement in a situation to where they can lose everything. And not just their job, they can lose their freedom. And at some point, law enforcement officers in California say it's not worth it. Yeah, and you know, to add to that, I, I think, like you said, it, it's really been thrust into law enforcement's laps. Uh, we've been trying to deal with the issue with the resources that we've had. Uh, we create these teams, we create these uh, organizations, um, and it's one of those things where the funds are really never there to support these types of programs. And there have been some agencies who have done some fantastic work to address these, but the need is overwhelming um, and the, the demand to uh, for law enforcement to pick this up. And, and I think a lot of the stuff that we've researched and that we're going to propose um, is going to address that. And Let's engage these professionals who deal with this on a regular basis. Um, let's bring them into the fold. And the money that we're trying to bring forward through the legislation, this isn't all going to law enforcement. It's going to give the money to the right people that can handle these situations and support law enforcement in doing the things that we have to do regarding mental health and homelessness. And I think that's important because even over the years that we've seen, even with Post taking the cuts that it's cut, been taking, I think it's important that we start tying a financial component to all this legislation because I think in the past, the legislatures have created this legislation and there's never really been a lot of funding there it's like, oh, yeah, you know what? You guys can handle that. You guys handle that. And I think you brought that up with the earlier stuff uh, with the releasing of the mental health people. And I think that is a huge issue. And, and maybe we could dovetail that into our, our training policies and some of the changes that we're going to make recommendations. And I think a majority of agencies in the state of California probably have those already implemented. So I don't see that being too much of an onerous issue. But it's great to see that PORAC got some additional funding from the governor's office to to not only 
deal with the de-escalation and the mental health training. But, you know, a lot of times when people come into law enforcement, they want to be able to, uh, to try other avenues. Maybe I want to be a homicide detective. Maybe I want to go into vice. Maybe I want to go into narcotics. But if your agency doesn't have the funds to send you to some of that training to see if whether you want to pursue that as a career, then you're sort of really stuck in a place of if your department will allow you to do that. And I think by funding post to the necessary levels that it needs to be able to offer these uh, opportunities um, and then incorporating the mental health training and funding that is will become available through some of the legislation that we're proposing. I think we're taking a much more holistic approach and dealing with this use of force issue that was so prevalent in the discussions last year. And obviously a bigger part of this is the use of force policies in and of themselves. And we have uh, our legal defense panel attorney, uh, David Mastagni here, who's done uh, a ton of work on PORAC's behalf here in Sacramento. And uh, thank you for being on the show today, David. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, you know, one of the big issues that we dealt with and consistently heard last year was the changing of 196 and 835A. And the Graham v. Connor, I think somebody who actually has to go out there and do it, I think the Supreme Court really got that right. What are your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree with you more. What I have observed is that the ACLU and Dr. Weber and the activists that are pushing this change in the standard are really waging an all-out assault on officers' right to self-defense and to defense of others, people like me in the general public. And by changing that standard from a reasonable officer, what they're doing is limiting the options that an officer has when they're presented with a situation where a suspect or a subject through their own actions have put that officer in peril or other members of the public in peril. And in the California Constitution, there's an express right of self-defense, which I believe that the old version of 931 and the likely new version of it are in direct conflict with. It creates another constitutional problem, and that's equal protection. Under Penal Code 197, a private citizen who uses deadly force in defense of themselves or other is judged by a reasonable person standard, which takes into account the totality of the situation and the circumstances, the training and ability of that private citizen. 196 is the statute that governs peace officers' use of deadly force, and it is a sister statute dealing with a reasonable officer taking all of those factors into account. And what 931 and its progency would do is hold an officer to a different standard than a private citizen. So in other words, if my life is in danger and I call 911 and the Sacramento Police Department dispatches an officer out to protect me, I have a greater right of self-defense and use of force than that officer who's ordered to come out there and put themselves in harm's way to protect me and other members of the public. And so there's a lot of efforts to gloss over and hide what is the core of the 931 bill, and that is the elimination of the Graham versus Connor standard. Through this back and forth, it's become very clear that that is the direct agenda, is to hold officers to a higher standard. What that probably looks like in uh, whatever is going to be presented is something where if there is any 
other option besides use of deadly force, including in the last bill, tactical repositioning, which sounds a lot like a a lawyerly way of saying retreating, then that officer loses a right of self-defense and defense of others. And so no matter how you parse the words and in the old bill, it said if a reasonable officer could articulate a reasonable alternative, then the right of self-defense goes away. So it sounds similar because you're using some of the same terms from Graham versus Connor, but you're defining necessary in a different way. And you're saying it's not necessary to use deadly force if there's anything else that you could have done. Whereas Graham versus Connor very appropriately looks at necessity from a reasonable officer standard, taking into account that it's a rapidly evolving situation and it's not looking at it from 2020 hindsight. And so some of the issues that are at play are things like an officer's right not to retreat when they're doing their job and they're faced with a deadly threat from a suspect. And this bill would likely require an officer to retreat if they could. Or if an officer makes a good faith mistake, they could then lose the right of self-defense. And if anyone comes after the fact and can articulate something else that the officer could have done, including, of course, tactical repositioning, then the officer would lose their right of self-defense. And so that's why it's critical that we maintain officers' right of self-defense and we maintain the reasonable officer standard, not just for those officers to be able to protect themselves, but also to be able to protect people like me, private citizens that rely on law enforcement in order to live a safe and happy life and have our families be safe. Yeah, you know, one of the big arguments we always hear about is, is you know, like Connecticut, they only have 33 officers or 33 deaths in, in their state. And, it, you know, it's like California is a unique state. I mean, we're very diverse. We have 40 million people, millions of contacts. I mean, the numbers of an actual, of you being involved with an officer-involved shooting are, are, the, are so, I guess, the technical legal terms, de minimis, right? Right. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's extremely rare. And, you know, we have some research going on about 2018. I think there was 114 use of force incidents where somebody uh, lost their lives. Um, You know, I think that research is going to show that, you know, officers by and large in the state of California are doing an excellent job. And we had a reduction over the previous year use of force incidents, and that was without AB 931. And... You know, here we are, we're heading down this path again, where I think the ultimate goal, like you said, is, is we want to criminalize peace officers from doing their job or a basic de-escalation and de-policing of the entire cities and counties of uh, California. And it's unfortunate that, um, you know, we have to have another big battle in 2019 over this. And it seems from my perspective is that it's pure political. Uh, it makes good sound, uh, you know, talking bites um, to a, a group of constituents that I don't know if they understand the full ramifications of what's being proposed. Um, outside of the 196 piece, you know, they wanted to make some additional changes to 835A. Um, and, you know, I it's, it's it, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, oh, obviously we're going to have a... A battle ahead of us, uh, you know, trying to get people to support us. Um, you know, they're good at filling up the committee rooms and and bringing people forward uh, who've had adverse uh, contacts with law enforcement officers. Um, but 
we don't really hear by and large from the silent majority. Um, I hear from them privately or when I run across them uh, that they support us and they think that we're doing great work. But how do we fight that battle in the committee rooms where this, and maybe this is a question for Randy, um, to overcome that piece of it? Um, because they're, they're more than happy to, to block intersections. They'll block the freeways. They'll carry coffins around streets. Uh, they'll shut down uh, committee meetings. They'll shut down. Uh, I, sit, I used to sit on the RIPA board. Uh, Damon uh, has so graciously accepted to take over my position on the Racial Identity Profiling Board. Uh, you know, they'll shut those meetings down. Um, and from our perspective, we, we just don't do that. If I could jump in, I think that you and Randy have done an excellent job of presenting an alternative path forward. You said at the beginning of your comments, everybody wants to reduce these type of deadly encounters. And you're dealing, your bill will deal with the societal end of that. And Far more important than messing with the penal code, which is will be a disaster, is dealing with training and giving officers more tools, more options when they face these situations because there's a physiological reaction that you have when you have a deadly force encounter and you go into memory, muscle memory, what you've been trained on, what you've practiced on. And the reasonableness of an officer's actions are the totality of the situation, the circumstances, by giving this bill's additional training on all of these de-escalation alternatives, mental health issues, we're giving officers more tools that will have a real impact rather than putting words on a piece of paper to try to criminalize law enforcement. And really, I think the ultimate goal is to incentivize officers to stand down and then we as a society suffer. So I think that what I would love to see is all of PORAC's members get behind the leadership here and push this agenda and talk to their legislators and actually get out of the chair and help work the bill that you two have worked on so hard. Yeah, and that, you know, that brings up two issues. And, and, and the first one is, uh, you know, at our conference, we brought Force Science in to do a presentation. Um, I think it's vitally important that PORAC uh, partners with them to bring more Force Science training to California. I think it's imperative that our members and our association leadership attends that and understands the science behind officer-involved uh, shootings. Um, we see a lot of times... Uh, how the news media portrays a shooting. And I use an example out of Arizona where a person with a cell phone videotaped a officer-involved shooting. And if you look at it, it would look like the officer had basically assassinated somebody with their arms up. So this individual uh, that I went to this class to, he brought in some Hollywood people and they talked about how sound uh, is not as fast as what you see visually. And they did it by 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet. So by the time you heard the crack of the gun, the firing of the weapon, um, the individual still had their, their hands up. But in reality, the individual had pulled a gun on the officer and he had fired in response to that. But based on the visual, it gave an appearance of an individual with their hands up uh, by the times you heard the, the round being fired. When in reality, the guy had fired, the officer had fired the round, um, you know, a couple seconds before the individual put their hands up. So these are the types of things that I think we need to do as a leadership to be able to start educating our news folks. Um, and I wish the news media in and of itself would try to get better trained 
on use of force incidents because, um, you know, one of the things that we're dealing with is, is all we're getting is snippets, edits of cell phone videos. I mean, we see it all the time. I mean, there was an incident here in D.C. where we saw some snippets of some incidents, um, and it just really doesn't give you the full picture. And I think that's one of the things that I heard uh, when I was sitting on the RIPA board was all the officers are exonerated in court. They're upset with that. It's like, I saw this video and this officer needs to be in jail, but yet they go to court and they're completely exonerated of the officer-involved shooting. And that's really part of you know your profession, David. And I think maybe from your perspective, you could talk a little bit about why is that? Why do we see a video and then at court, they're completely exonerated? Well, there's a couple of things. First on the comment about just being exonerated, it's a false equivalence to treat an officer who is in a deadly force situation with a criminal suspect who is using deadly force against the officer or members of the public, because I think it's important to keep in context that officers are trained and they're out there defending themselves and defending others, and they should come in with the perspective of being the good guy. They're typically treated as a victim in officer-involved shooting investigations because there was some crime that was committed against them that put them in danger and necessitated their need to use deadly force. Um, In terms of the public response, I would first say they should be happy that the findings are when you actually look at the evidence and you can enhance the video and you can get the experts to dissect everything is you have a determination that officers are acting appropriately. And that's a good thing. We don't want officers out there shooting people unnecessarily or using unreasonable force, particularly deadly force. And when you take one to your ultimate question, when you take one piece of evidence out of context, it doesn't give you the full picture. I mean, that's one of my concerns uh, with body cameras is not releasing them, but releasing them piecemeal at an early stage and then wait six months later and you'll get the full report that puts into context the officer's state of mind and their justification for the actions they took, the witnesses' statements and perceptions and fears, experts that can enhance the videos, experts that can explain differences in what a body camera captures versus what a human eye captures, and all of the physiological responses that an officer has going through these situations. And it's often a different picture. You look at the cases that have been around for decades where officers end up shooting a suspect in the back, and it looks terrible at the front end. Oh, you shot this guy in the back. But when you actually break it down and you look at the response times from when the officer perceives the threat to when their muscle pulls the trigger and then the the, the distance and the time it takes for the bullet to travel. In almost all of those circumstances, when the officer perceived the threat and made the decision to use deadly force, they were presented with an imminent threat and the person was facing them with a weapon or advancing on them. And then they turned and you have that perception reaction time difference and it looks bad, but once you explain it to reasonable people that are open-minded and are gonna give fair due process to that officer, it then makes sense. That doesn't sell newspapers and it's not a chippy soundbite. Thanks. So I guess I'll close it up with Randy here. <laughs> in uh, you know, for 2019, for 2019, I mean, we got a big task ahead of us. Um, obviously, this is just one of many bills that we're going to see, but obviously this is the biggest one that we'll probably carry. What do you, what is your, I guess you have to see into the future. 
what do you see the biggest fight for us? Well, obviously, this, this issue is going to be the biggest fight. I mean, we're going to be battling ACLU. We've been meeting with them through the pro tem Tony Atkins office all fall and discussing the issues. And quite frankly, we're done with those conversations and they haven't moved. Um, they, they were clear with us when we met with them last that their intention is exactly what David talked about, and that is to increase the, the standard. So, I mean, that's going to be our biggest fight. But unlike last year where it was an all-out battle to kill their bill, I'm very proud of the way law enforcement has come together with the help of everybody around this table, including David Mustagny Jr., and have put together a package that will, in our opinion, truly impact use of force, serious uses of force will truly impact it. And um, I'm very proud of the fact that we've done that. So we will be moving on the on our offensive play this year. We're going to show legislators that what we're doing is, is a real impact and it is a better way to approach this issue than what Dr. Weber's going to be putting forward in the ACL on behalf of the ACLU. So I'm proud of that. That's going to be our biggest issue. We do have other bills. We have some work comp bills we're going to deal with, uh, some cleanup legislation on some stuff. Last year, you know, we put out the out-of-state work comp coverage. Um, we have a couple of other issues in, in the work comp area to, to protect our members. We, I think we have a governor now that will probably look more favorably upon work comp changes and presumptions and things of that sort. So we're going to Test the waters. All right. I don't know. I want to uh, let Damon chime in here. You got any? Uh... No, I, I think that uh, Randy kind of put it into into perspective, but this is going to be a big challenge for us, and we've been harping on our members that we're going to need more involvement from them, both at the chapter levels, the local levels, meet, meeting with their electeds, lobbying with them locally, but also up here in Sacramento. Um, those that are that seek to make these changes are here every week lobbying with the uh, the electeds here and we need to do the same it can't just be a few of us it's got to be a concerted effort um, it's got to be collaborative and I think we can do that we show we we rallied at the end of the legislative session last year um, but we need to make that a year-long challenge this year we can't just rally at the end and expect to come out uh, victorious in the end it's going to be an all-hands-on-deck uh, proposal so all right. Thanks, Damon. I agree 100% with you. And I really definitely need uh, all the PORAC members to come out and support us. Uh, if you don't go to chapter meetings, I highly recommend that you do. I need you to get involved. PORAC needs you to get involved. Randy needs you to get involved to help at the legislature. And David needs you to get involved to help us so the legislatures understand the importance of all about uh, PC-196 and Graham v. Connor, Tennessee versus Garner are so important to us that are actually out there practicing it. I want to thank you for both being in here today, being our special guest. Thanks for listening to the show. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please join us on our social media platforms. Go to porac.org for more info. Porac.org. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Google, please give us five stars. That helps us get noticed. Don't forget to share our podcast with your Porac members, your family, and friends. All the best and have a safe day. That's it for this episode. Make sure you tune in next time as we discuss the issues that matter. 